He went a little farther, all alone, into the darkest night this world has ever known. The ancient olive trees, a vigil kept, disciples slept. He went a little farther to a tree that stretched its cruel arms or calvary. No other could have suffered in the stead of him who bled. He went a little farther. Fear and gloom encompassed those who laid him in the tomb. Forgotten was his promise unto men to rise again. He went a little farther. Christ arose. Triumphant over sin and death our foes. And now in heaven lives to intercede for human need. He went a little farther. Wondrous thought. For you, for me, he has salvation brought. We choose to live or die eternally. What shall it be? So we have in these first verses of Philippians chapter 2, the great example of the Lord who went a little farther, who gave it all, who gave until there was nothing left to give, who held nothing back, And now we're going to come, first of all, to some exhortations. Mm, I'm not sure your outline has the right verses. It should say 12 to 16, exhortations to sacrificial living. Okay. And then 17 to 30, examples of sacrificial living. Okay, good. We're on the same page. Let's read. Verse 12, chapter 2, the word of the Lord says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world." holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason you also be glad and rejoice with me. But I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Therefore, I hope to send him at once as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, but your messenger and the one who ministered to my need, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such men in esteem, because for the work of Christ 
he came close to death, not regarding his life to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Heavenly Father, we bow again in your presence in the name of the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this opportunity to meet together to study your word. We're depending upon your strength, your Holy Spirit to help us, to guide us, to guide our thoughts. We're inviting you afresh, Heavenly Father, to touch our lives. Anything, Lord, we will hold nothing back. Touch us, mold us, change us, strengthen us, encourage us, redirect us, do whatever you want. Put an end to anything that you want to. Make a beginning for anything that you want to. May your will be done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So before Paul comes to the three human examples, we've had the divine example of esteeming others better, of sacrifice and service. Before he comes to that, he has this little section here, verses um, 12 to 16, where he exhorts them to sacrificial living. Then he's going to come back to the examples. But first we have here the exhortations. He says, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's a verse that's caused a lot of people problems. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not just them. Lots of people. We're going to think about it. He's talking here in verses 12 and 13 about the believer's works. The believer's works. Therefore, he says, in the light of what has gone before. Considering what we have just thought of, since Christ did all these things for us, what should we do? He says, as you have always obeyed, and you notice how he speaks to them with this affection, he calls them my beloved. As you have always obeyed, he calls on them to continue. Christ was obedient unto death. We should always obey. Obedience is not a dirty word. As you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only. And we had that before, didn't we? We talked about whether he was with them, came to be with them, or was absent. And here you have it again. It's not something you do in somebody's presence to please them. Um, In chapter 1, I believe it was, verse 18. And no, you're 27. Thank you, Dean. Yes, let your conversation be as becomes the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, whether he's with them or whether he's separated from them. They tell the story of a missionary somewhere in the Pacific. Right now it escapes me the place. But um, it was in a jungle area, and they were trying to clear an area of the jungle to build a landing strip so that the missionary aviation people could fly in and bring supplies, medical supplies, or whatever happened to be needed. But they had to clear out the jungle, cut the trees and dig out the stumps and all this and make a place, a strip for the plane to come in. Well, he had this group of people, the, the nationals, working for him there. And he laid out the plans, what should have been done. He was an older man, had a lot of strength himself, and uh, he couldn't do it all. And so he counted on them to do most of the work, and he laid it all out. And, and he would stay out there with them, and they watch, and they worked along. And then he would go back to the house, and he would have lunch and have a nap. And 
come back and in the afternoon the sun's going down and it looked like they weren't making a lot of progress. And this dragged on for months and the landing strip was not getting finished. And the, and the stumps were not getting dug out and there were still trees that needed to be cut down and, they did, and he couldn't figure it out because every time he saw them they were all working. So yeah, yeah, when he went home they, they sat down and told stories. So one of them finally told him what was going on. So you know what he did? He had lost an eye in an injury years before he had a glass eye. And the people in this area had never seen a glass eye. They didn't know what that was. <laughs> I'm telling it to you just the way it was told to me. So he, put, he, he called them all in and he fussed at them for not finishing the landing strip. And he said, okay, since you only work when I'm here, I'm leaving my eye here. And he had his posties right there. And, and he took his eye out right in front of him and popped out the glass eye. He set it on the post in front of them all. And he went back to his house to eat lunch. Oh, see, they didn't know what a glass eye was. They worked and the thing was finished right away. <laughs> Serving the eye. Pleasing the eye. You know, there's a, I don't think you can find much better illustration than that of what happened, you know. Paul says, not in my presence only, not just when I'm looking. Okay, now you laughed. Now here comes the uncomfortable part. What do you do when nobody's looking? You know the old song, no one knows what goes on behind closed doors? Go and act like you don't know what that song is. I, I know you've heard it. Nobody knows. No one knows what goes on behind closed doors. That was a country western hit. Somebody here heard it. Y'all can act that way if you want to. Yeah. Well, God knows. See, how you pray when you're home alone, that's what your prayer life is really like. How you study the Bible when you're not in a Bible study like right now, that's how your Bible study life really is. If you go home and the television is the God of your house and you sit there for hours soaking it in and this is... 15 minutes a day. Well, you know, how you are when people are not watching, that's how you are. That's how you are. How's your real prayer life? How's your real Bible study life? How's your personal worship life? How's your, how's your life of service and love to the other brothers? How is it? He's watching them sometimes and sometimes he's not. And here he says... Not in my presence only. See, they had a good reputation. They were an obedient church. They were a church of people who were like in James 2, James 1, 22. Be ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. There's a church. Paul could say, now the characteristic of the church in Laodicea, for example, we saw that earlier, how they were. But now the church in Philippi, Paul could say, that's an obedient church. There are people that hear the word of God and do it. As you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation because you might not get to heaven. Is that what that means? Yeah. 
That's not what that means. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't say work for your salvation. Work to obtain your salvation. He says work it out. That means it's in you. And he says that further down. He says, for it is God who works in you. God has already done the work in us. He's begun it. And we saw that in chapter 1 where he said in verse 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. That's the way you talk to real believers. A real believer is a person that God has done a work in his life, but God's not finished. He's still working. So what is he saying here? He's not talking about working for salvation. He's talking about working it out. Letting it show. Living it. Fleshing it out. This is what he's talking about. Not work for. Not work on. Not work to get. But it's in you and let it work out. Another way we could say it. Let your light shine. Let it shine. Let people see it. This is what he's talking about. But he says to do it with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling. Two things missing in many churches today. Paul says in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, Knowing therefore the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But the modern church has drank at the fountain that says and misinterprets that verse, perfect love casts out fear. And they say there's no reason for us to have any fear. Eh, We shouldn't have phobia, fear. Be afraid and run and hide from God like you're afraid of the boogeyman and all those kind of things. It's not that kind of fear. But it is an awe and a reverence. When you draw near to God. What does it say in the book of Ecclesiastes? He says when you come to present your offering. Remember that God is in heaven. And you are on the earth. And therefore let your words be few. And be careful not to present the sacrifice of fools. Blah, 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 blah. That's reverence. But I, I don't want to take off. Take the edge off the word fear by always calling it reverence because the Bible uses the word fear. And as long as you understand we're not talking about the be afraid of the phobia kind, the word fear is good. He says to work it out through, but what are we afraid of? No, 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 it's not that. It's not being afraid that you're going to lose your salvation. It's not being afraid that you might not make it to heaven if you don't keep doing stuff. It's not being afraid that God isn't going to let you in. It's not a question mark about those kind of things. It is the fear of displeasing God, of bringing dishonor to his name. What did the prophet have to tell David when he sinned with Bathsheba? He said, you have caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You gave them a reason to blaspheme because of what you did. And they're still doing it. The atheist society or whatever they call themselves in the United States uh, back in the, in the um, 80s still had a folder, a piece of literature they had criticizing uh, Christianity 
and the Bible and all people who believe in God because of what David did. Still blaspheming. Fear and trembling. That you might lose your reward, that you might bring dishonor on the Lord, that you might cause someone else to stumble. That somebody else, some child, some new believer, some person might see and be offended or saddened or disgusted. They might stumble. Their life might be weakened. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Just save. God save you. Now let it show. Live like a saved person, not like a worldling. With fear and trembling, he says, to tremble. That means you really take it seriously. It affects your thoughts. It affects your emotions. It affects your will, your behavior. Work it out. So we have the believer's work here. Work out your own salvation. We have God's work. See, it's a team. For it's God working in you, the next verse says. We couldn't do it if it wasn't for that. That's a given here. That's the, the basic condition that makes it possible, verse 13, for me to do what's in verse 12. Because God is in me. If I'm a believer, God is in me. And if God is in me, see, I, what does that song say? Uh, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It says, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. Let it out. Let people know who you are. A man told a, a new believer who was going off to do military service. He told him, he said, you, when you get into the army, he said, you nail your colors to the mast right away. Well, that's a mixed metaphor. He's going into the army. He didn't have any mast. I don't, he should have said that to the people going into the navy. But anyway, that's what he told him. This was a British thing. It's an old expression. They have nail your colors. That means the flag to the mast so they know who you are. If the ship lowered the flag, then the other ships couldn't tell what country it belonged to. But when they ran up the colors, and he said, don't run them up, nail them up there. He said, when you go in, let them know right away who you are. Have a testimony. See, and then they're not going to invite you to go do certain things. And they're not going to try to include you in certain activities and in certain jokes and in certain situations. Because you already made it clear where you stand. Work it out. You could say let it out. For God works in you. To do what? Where does the desire come from? When God saves a person, He works in their life. He works in their heart and He gives them different desires from what they had before. I know when I became a true believer, my desires began to change. And I now desired and loved things that before I had no interest in. And things that I had interest in before I now felt ashamed and disgusted about. My desires began to change. And how did that happen? God did it. I didn't do it. Nobody gave me a little list and said, all right now, I want you to take all these albums and I want you to take all these activities and I want you to trash all that. I didn't have a little list that somebody gave me that said, now, if you want to be in fellowship in this church, you've got to do 
this and this and this and get rid of this and this and this. You know what? It's a pathetic man who only does it if somebody gives him a list. That's pathetic. Really. That the only way you'd ever eliminate or sacrifice or get rid of, jettison anything out of your life is if somebody can put it on a list and give you a bunch of verses and argue you into it and make you surrender. And nothing voluntary there. Where's God at work? Where's God at work? He says, God is working in you to will and to do His good pleasure. All right. What is His good pleasure? Go back to verses 5 to 11. What is God's good pleasure? That we should have this mind in us which also was in Christ Jesus. Let's not forget the context of the chapter, what we're talking about here. Let's not leave that in one compartment. Let's bring that forward and remember it as we read this. What is God's good pleasure? That we be humble, that we be obedient unto Him, even unto death. That we take the low place, that we serve others, that we esteem others. That we do nothing with strife and vainglory or selfish ambition or conceit. What is God's pleasure? That we be one-minded, that we have one spirit, that we be of one accord. What is God's pleasure? And He's working in us. He produces desire and He makes it possible to will and to do. See, that's where it comes from. To will and to do is good pleasure. And that's really what we live for. Or we should live for. Live to please Him. That's a subject that really deserves... A couple of sessions all by itself. The verses in the scripture where we are told over and over again not to live to please ourselves, but to live to please God. Hmm. To live to please God. It's no good to say, I can't. Don't say that. And I'll tell you, if anything that the scripture says of us, if you come to me and say, I can't, I'm going to say the only person who can say that is a person who's not a believer. Because God is at work in a believer to produce the will, to will and to do his good pleasure. I can't do it by myself. Okay, I'll accept that. I can't do it by myself. But let's remember, the Christian never has any reason to say that because he's never by himself. He's in Christ. He has the Holy Spirit dwelling in him. And the Lord promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So what is this by myself stuff? I know I can't by myself, but I count on the Lord's help. And he transforms our mind, our thoughts, our desires, our priorities. And he, he puts in us this new set of desires and we will to do his pleasure. I come low in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God, the Lord Jesus said. And we stammer and stutter. And we talk like little children who are just learning to speak. But that's all right. It's music to the Father's ears. As we grow as Christian men, we're learning slowly but surely through all the different problems and situations in life. We're learning. He's teaching us to say, me too. I come to do your will, O Lord. Teach me to do your will, O Lord. Teach me to please you, O Lord. I want to do what pleases you, Lord. Not argue with God in prayer and cajole him and bargain with him and try to wear him down until he finally gives us what we want. But to be able to say, 
Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'm not much for repeating the Lord's Prayer, but for taking those words and making them my own. For To pray like that, I am. Because those are powerful words. Powerful words. Thy will be done on earth. And guess in whose life? <laughs> As it is in heaven. How they do the Lord's will in heaven? With a long face. It says here, do all things without murmuring and complaining. Without complaining and disputing. You think the angels complain and dispute? How they do God's will in heaven? The Lord tell the angel to do something. He says, I'll pray about it. <laughs> We're clever, aren't we? We're as slick as my bald head. I'll pray about it. What do you mean you pray about it? Instantly. Convinced that it's the best thing. With joy. Completely. Not leaving out any part. Praising God. Being grateful for the opportunity to serve Him. How is God's will done in heaven? And when God works in us to will and to do His good pleasure, guess what? No grumbling or complaining. See, he gets to the believer's attitude in verses 15, 14 and 15. His attitude. Because nothing ruins a sacrifice or an act of Christian service like a grumbling or disputing spirit. It ruins it all. To complain or dispute means to, to grumble, to murmur, to argue. These are symptoms of internal trouble. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. In verse 47. Deuteronomy 28, 47. Um, let's see. I know Dean has a new King James, so I'm going to let him read. Verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and need of everything. And he will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Thank you. Okay, there are other issues at work here in Deuteronomy, but this uh, this is the point we're focusing on right here. The Lord didn't just say you should, and to serve Him there means to worship Him, to come to the tabernacle, uh, and to present your offerings to the Lord, to worship and follow Him, and not the heathen gods. But the point He's saying here: not only did you not do it when you did come, you didn't come with joy. Malachi, chapter one. Verses 6 to 14. Who wants to volunteer to read? Malachi 1, 6 to 14. 
Okay, Adam. Six to fourteen, yeah. Uh, Malachi one verses six to fourteen. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am the father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my reverence? Says the Lord of hosts to you priests who despise my name. Yet you say, in what way have we despised your name? You offer defiled food on my altar. But say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying, the table of the Lord is contemptible. And when you offer to the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? But now entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us. Well, this is being done by your hands. Will he accept you favorably, says the Lord of hosts? Who is there even among you who would shut the doors so that you would not kindle fire on my altar in vain? I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from your hands. For from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it, in that you say the table of the Lord is defiled and its fruit its food is contemptible. You also say, oh, what a weariness, and you sneer at it, says the Lord of hosts, and you bring the stolen, the lame, and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? To 14? Mm-hmm. But cursed be the deceiver who, ha- who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am, I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Amen. Malachi prophesied at the time these things were going on in the period of the reconstruction after the temple had been rebuilt. Uh, the, the priests, it says, they despised the offerings of the Lord. They, the people brought the lame and the sick instead of the best and the unblemished. And said, they said, oh, what a weariness it is. And they despised it. The old King James says, you snuffed at it. It means you went. You got to go to meeting again. This church, they have so many meetings. Why do we have to have, to have another meeting? Oh, what a weariness it is. Why do we have to break bread every Sunday? Can we do it once a month? I mean, we don't want it to lose its meaning, right? Uh-huh. You kiss your wife once a month then so it doesn't lose its meaning. Get out of here with that. <laughs> They were complaining and grumbling. See, this is what the Lord said. They were coming, but they were complaining about it. And this is, I'm having us read this and consider it. And there's a lot of other things there. Uh, at that time, the Lord, uh, when the Lord said that through Malachi about what was going on in Jerusalem, those pathetic sacrifices and the behavior of the priests, the Greeks were building the Acropolis in Athens. That's when that was being constructed in all of its glory. And have you ever been there? You should go and see that and, and see uh, the drawings of the, what the reconstruction of it, the artist concept of it reconstructed would be. All the glory of the Acropolis in Athens. 
And God said, this, here they are. Oh, what a weariness it is. And they'd given God the lame and the blind. And the wolves had torn a lamb and it was about to die. But they hurried and before it died, they threw it up on the altar so it would breathe its last on the altar and sacrifice it there. Don't give your leftovers to God. Don't give your leftovers to God. God wants the first and the best, you see. And then they complained. They complained. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Because when that goes on on the inside, there's trouble. When what's coming out of our mouth is complaining and disputing, those are symptoms of what's on the inside. A heart that is not thankful, that is not humble, that is not content. And it needs to be dealt with. Do all things without that. And many are the sins of the tongue. Read the book of Proverbs and see. Read James 3 and see how many, how myriad are the sins of the tongue. The two ways in which we sin the most are in thought and in speech. Because those are the two things that are easiest for us to do. We're always thinking. And that's the easiest way to sin. And after that is speaking. And then come the other things that we do or don't do. But those are the two easiest ways. And Proverbs addresses the problem over and over again, not only of the thoughts, but of the sins of the tongue, the mouth, the speech. And here he says, do all things without murmuring and disputing, without complaining and disputing. Christians are not supposed to be that way. The children of Israel murmured in the wilderness. They complained. They didn't like the manna. You know what? God could have just said, okay, then eat sand. They didn't like the, the water. It was bitter. They said, well, drink cactus juice. Well, they didn't have that. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. That you may be blameless and harmless children of God without fault. That's not how you become that. That's not what that means. You don't transform yourself into that. That means that you may give that testimony to other people, that they may see you that way. Children of God, blameless and harmless, without fault, in the midst of a world that does exactly the opposite, that lives exactly the opposite of the way you do. Sons of God, without fault, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, twisted well, the world has been twisted for so long. When the gospel came and straightened it out, they complained. See, they say that we turned the world upside down, that the apostles turned the world upside down. They said the world was upside down ever since sin entered the world. But it had been upside down for so long, everybody got used to it. And they, the gospel turned it back over, and now they thought that was upside down. So the, this is the way it is. Twisted, crooked, perverse, corrupt. This is the world around us. And the world is this way, but we are not. God calls Christians to be different. And he calls us to shine as lights in the world, among whom you shine. He's not going to take us out of the world the moment we get saved. He's going to leave us in it to shine. So, this little light of mine. That's what's, ha that's what's happening here. Shine as lights in the world, he says. This is what he wants us to do. And how do we do that? Holding forth the word of life. Holding it forth 
Or uh, some versions translate this, holding firmly the word of life. Okay, let's think about holding it forth. If that's what it means, then it means like holding up a lantern. It means like a lighthouse set up in a high place where all the ships can see, where the light can get around to everybody and warn them lest they go against the rocks or the reefs and go under. Holding forth the word of life. Holding it out to people so they can see it. Proclaiming the word of life. What we're putting out in front of us. What we talk about. For we preach not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Paul said when he went to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, I determine not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He came preaching the Word of God. What do we talk about? What do we preach? You know, sometimes we're like the Dead Sea. You know what the problem with the Dead Sea is? Did you know that the Dead Sea gets thousands of gallons of fresh water into it every day? The Jordan River runs right down and empties into the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea receives thousands of gallons of fresh water every day, sweet water every day. The trouble with the Dead Sea is it doesn't have any outlet. So the water just pools up there. And then it evaporates. And of course when it evaporates it leaves the salts, the minerals in it. And so that's why it's the way it is. And it really is dead. There is no life in it. And that, and it is so salty. And I've done this. that you can get in and lie down in the, try to submerge yourself. You just lie on your back like that. The water just barely might come in your ear a little teeny bit. You just, it's like laying on top of a rubber mat or something. You just lay there on top of it. And that's made simply by all this fresh water being received and no outlet. Receive, 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 and never give. And we become like that sometimes. Not because what's going into our lives isn't good. Not because uh, the Holy Spirit isn't in us like rivers of water. Not because we don't have uh, the Word of God. Not because we don't have... The Lord is our example, not because we don't have opportunity, but simply because we don't let it out. It comes in and we soak it in and we take it in and it all dies right there. And we become stagnant. He says, hold forth the word of life. When the Thessalonians received the scriptures from Paul, when they heard the gospel from Paul, what does it say? It says, from you, the word of the Lord sounded forth. The Philippians received the word. Uh, Excuse me, the Thessalonians received the word and then they turned right around and preached the word. And that's what they were supposed to do with it. When it had an effect in their lives and they began to proclaim it to other people. It came in, and you see that in chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. The word comes in. They received it with affliction. And it says, and then it went out. It didn't stay there. They didn't become the depository, the final resting place of the word of God. So he says, shine, holding forth the word of life. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Okay, but there's another way to think of it. 
It can mean holding firmly, holding on to the word of life. In that sense, we would be thinking about the Bible, let's say, as a compass or as a guidebook. I don't know if you see this, but I see it a lot living in Europe. Uh, People who come to Europe as tourists, and what do they do? Well, they get there, and you see them. First of all, you can tell that they're tourists right away by the way they dress, and they always have a camera growing out of them at some place, you know. But a lot of times you see them because they're walking around with these guidebooks. Eh? They walk around with these guidebooks, and one's like this, and the other's walking beside them and says, next street is, and they're looking for the street names and walking along with their little guidebook so they don't get lost. And when I did my years in military service, they taught us, one of the things they taught us about escape and evasion in case when you're a pilot, in case you get shot down in combat and you have to make it back across the line to friendly territory. And they teach you how to use a compass and, and a topographical map and how to navigate. And then they toss you out there in the wilderness up, up there somewhere between Washington and Canada where we were so far up in the mountains, we, walk, we walked across a sort of a cleared area in the forest and there were deer standing there and they didn't even move. They didn't know what we were. We just walked right by them. They looked at us and we looked at them and we just kept walking. <laughs> God is my witness. That happened. We said, boys, we are all, we're either in a zoo or we're a long way up in the wilderness. You know, and they chase you with jeeps and planes and men with guns and everything. And, and you learn to escape them, to evade them, and to, and to read the map and to navigate. And you got that thing right there. And you learn, what do they tell us about? How, how long your step is and how many steps equals a mile. And you're thinking about all these things and you're trying to get to that checkpoint where the friendly forces are so that they can take you in and take you into cover and protection. So you lose the map or the compass and your goose is cooked. Holding fast the word of life. You're not going to find God's word in the television. There he goes again. Yeah, that's right. There I go again because there we go again. How come is it we can read the Bible for 10 minutes and say, well, that does it for me today. And yet when we, when we, um, well, not today, obviously. But then when we watch television, we like for the movie to be at least two hours long. What's our intake on a day-to-day basis of the Word of God? You see... The devil, what he does in the world, what they do is they crowd our lives with things that might not in themselves necessarily be bad. But they're robbing us, keeping us away from what's better. See, it's a bad trade. The good becomes the enemy of the best. Holding fast the word of life. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ. You hang on to it. You let other people see it. And you hang on to it. And you let it guide you. That I may rejoice in the day of Christ. That I have not run in vain or labored in vain. That was the thing that Paul lived in fear of. Vanity. Doing it for nothing. It means vain means empty. Valueless. Powerless. It's like a car and you lift up the hood and there's no motor. It's like an egg and you crack the shell open and there's nothing on the inside. That's vain. Vanity, empty, useless, powerless. He, he lived in fear of, of living his life that way. I don't want to live in vain. I don't want to labor in vain. In 
and we shouldn't want to live in vain. Just live with no result, no power, no result, no fruit, and just go to heaven. Oh, we say with false piety, it'll just be enough for me to see the face of the Lord. As if it didn't matter, we don't really want the rewards, we say. So we're scorning the rewards that the Lord put before us. The Lord said, here's a crown of glory. Here's a crown of righteousness. Here's a crown of life. Here's a crown of rejoicing. And the Lord's putting these crowns before us. And we say, eh, keep your crowns. Well, nobody gets to the heaven on the basis of crowns. I don't want to be misunderstood. We get to heaven on the basis of the blood of Christ because we trust in one who died for us. But I'll tell you something. There was an old hymn they used to sing, Must I go and empty-handed? And the hymn writer was, was thinking about this, the possibility that he might have to die and go to heaven empty-handed, go to that great celebration and rejoicing in the sky and have nothing, no crown to cast at the Savior's feet. That I may rejoice, says Paul. I don't want to live in vain. And when I see you come into heaven having holding fast the word of God, you got that guidebook, that compass in your hand, and you came in that way, and, and you were holding it out to other people, and you were having a testimony to them, he said, that's going to be rejoicing for me in the day of Christ. In the day of Christ, in, the, in that day of the judgment seat of Christ, we're not only going to rejoice that we're in heaven and saved by the grace of God, we're not only going to rejoice in anything that we that God has enabled us to do for him, that we receive a reward, but we're going to rejoice when we see other believers receive a reward. When we see them bear fruit or have a crown to, to give back to the Lord and worship, when we see they do something to honor and glorify the Lord, that's going to be rejoicing for us. He says, yes. And now he comes to his example in verse 17, verses 17 and 18. Here come the examples. The first one is Paul's. He says, yes. And if I am offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I joy and rejoice with you all for the same cause also. Do you joy and rejoice with me? What's he saying? If I am poured out as a drink offering, this great sacrifice, the altar, the bronze altar, for example, and the sacrifice, the wood is there and the animal is there and it's burning. And then the priest comes up. Yeah, this one's empty. The priest comes up with a chalice with wine or some strong drink in it and he pours it out. I'll clean it up later. Don't worry. It'll be evaporated by now. He pours out this wine, this drink offering, this libation. He pours it. It's a second offering, a little offering, offered on top of a great big offering. You imagine the heat of an offering that's enough to burn a bullock, burn a calf. Completely. So they're pouring out this. And what happens as soon as this is poured out? And it's gone. Vaporized. Look at what Paul is saying. He says, If I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice. I'm glad and rejoice, he says. This is what Paul considered his life. Look at what he considered their life. The life of the Philippian believers. He, he said the sacrifice and service of your faith. 
Can they say that about us today? He said, what you're living in Philippi, that's the big sacrifice. What I'm doing is just a little drink offering poured out on top of it. And it's gone. Look how Paul esteems them better than himself. Look how Paul values them. Look how he thinks about them. Look how he encourages them. But also look at his own example of sacrificial service. I'm willing to be poured out and vaporized. He says, if I'm poured out on the sacrifice and service of your faith, if I'm offered as a drink offering, I'm happy. He says, I'm happy. Well, today, a man who wants to be offered upon the sacrifice and service of the faith of believers, he might have to look through a few churches before he finds one where the believers are willing to to be sacrificed and to serve instead of to be served. Martyrdom is not a tragedy except to selfish people. And he says, joy and rejoice with me. That's the first example, Paul's example. There's a hymn we used to sing. I don't know if you know it. It says, there is joy in serving Jesus. We still sing it a lot in Spanish, but I, don't, I can't remember the last time I sang that hymn in English. I don't even know if it's in the hymn books anymore. A lot of the old hymns just kind of disappear over time. There is joy in serving Jesus. Faith lived out produces sacrifice and service with joy. There is something sacrificial, innately sacrificial about the Christian life. Lived with the mind of Christ. It's impossible for the Christ-like Christian to avoid sacrifice. Because it's part of the nature of the Christian life. And Paul presents himself... As an example. Then he moves to Timothy, verses 19 to 24. Timothy's another example. He says, And I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy shortly to you, that I also may be of good comfort when I know of your state. He's concerned about them. And he's going to send Timothy. Timothy is the product of discipleship. Timothy can go and see how the Philippians are, and what he sees and reports to Paul will be exactly what their state is, what their condition is. And you can't always do that with people, because some brothers don't have any discernment. Everything looks okay to them. Some, some can't, don't perceive where the problems might be. Some don't see the strengths and the weaknesses. Some don't understand They can't get outside of themselves or they haven't grown and matured enough to be able to analyze correctly, spiritually, the condition of a church. Paul could. And because Timothy had been discipled by Paul, he had learned to do that. By observing Paul, by being with Paul, by listening to Paul, by being taught by Paul, and we can say by imitating him. He said, I want to send him. And he says, I can't send anyone else. I have no other man like-minded who will naturally care for your state. Timothy is uniquely like-minded. At that point in time, there was no one else with Paul that he could send. Many heard Paul teach. 
but they didn't all change their mind. And you know what? I'm not Paul, but you know what I'm saying. It's one thing to hear teaching, and it's another thing to let it change your mind. We have an opportunity to do that today, this weekend, yesterday, today. Not just to hear the teaching of the Word of God, see it in the Scriptures, but to let ourselves be persuaded by the Scriptures and to change our minds about things. See, he says he's like-minded. He's not thinking about himself. He's Christ-like. He will care for your state. He esteems you. He loves you. He values you. He will care for you. And that's why I can send him to you, he says. Timothy's an example. Imitate Paul's example. Willing to be poured out. Willing to have his life poured out as a drink offering to God and sacrifice. Imitate Timothy's example. Be like-minded with the apostle. Be like-minded with those who are willing to sacrifice for the good of others. He says, I I don't have anybody else. All seek their own, not the things which are Christ." Boy, if that was true back in the first century, just imagine how much more today. Sad state of affairs. Self-seeking believers. Everybody's full of their own plans, their own career, their own ideas. Yeah. Timothy's proven character. He's a humble learner and a servant, he says. You know the proof of him. He served like a father, like a son with a father. He served with me in the gospel. It doesn't say he graduated from seminary. It says he served with me. He was in the trenches with me in the gospel. He was serving. He learned it at my side, preaching and teaching and visiting and talking to people and defending the faith, traveling and living in difficult conditions. He served with me in the gospel. He earned his stripes, we say. And he says, I hope to send him to you. I hope to go and see you myself, he says in verse 24. But first he's sending Timothy until he can see how things will work out for himself. This is brotherly love. And Paul hopes to send Timothy because Timothy is sendable. He's sendable. Paul can say to Timothy, I want you to go. And Timothy can say, well, you're not any better than me. Go yourself. Or why are you sending me? I got my own plans. Timothy's sendable. He's teachable. He's a servant. Paul can send him. I hope we're that way. And you come to the third example, Epaphroditus, verses 25 to 30. Epaphroditus is another example of selfless sacrifice. Timothy served with Paul in the gospel. Timothy cared for them, not for his own things. He was a man who sacrificed and given his life. He made a decision to follow, to be a disciple, and to, to be a servant. And he says, now look at Epaphroditus. Boy, he was sick unto death. He nearly died serving you. He nearly died. Look at the titles he gives Epaphroditus in verse 25. My brother, not my convert or a layman. Fellow worker, not just an attender, a meeting attender. Fellow worker, or your fellowship in the gospel, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And that's what he was, a fellow worker. A fellow soldier, he calls him, in the fight with him. He says, your messenger, 
a service to the church. He was a servant of the church at Philippi. And he says, the one who ministered to my need, he took the offering and he ministered to Paul's need. He served the church and he served the apostle Paul. He was a fighter and the Christian life is a fight. He was a good soldier. Epaphroditus. And here's the explanation about Epaphroditus in verse 26. He says, he was longing for you all in distress. This is the good kind of homesick. He wasn't longing for the comforts of home. He was longing for the believers. And he was distressed. Why was he distressed? He was deeply distressed. Why? Verse 26 tells you. Because he, you had heard that he was sick. He didn't want them to know that he was sick. He was worried about them worrying about him. He didn't want people to know. He didn't talk about himself, his illness, his sickness. I had a relative in our family who'd always, when you went to see her, she'd always uh, pull up her skirt and roll down her hose so you could see the varicose veins on her leg. She always wanted to show it to you. And somebody else always wanted to show you his toe or his fingernail or something. Always self, 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 self. Aphrodite didn't want anybody to know he was sick. He was worried about them because now they were concerned about him. He says he was sick, verse 27. Indeed, he was sick. He was near death. Sick almost to death. Almost. Yeah. He's sick to death. He's nearly dead on his sick bed. And he's worrying. On top of that, he's worrying about them because they heard he was sick. He didn't want to worry the brethren. He's a contrast of these many, for all seek their own, we had in verse 21. Not Epaphroditus. There's an example to follow. A man who's willing to serve the Lord even if it means sickness, even if it means separation from his home, his family, even if it means death. God had mercy on him. It doesn't say he claimed his right as a believer and and got healed. Healing is a mercy, not a right. It's a mercy. God had mercy on him. He didn't name it and claim it. And verse 28 says, so I hope to send him. I hope to send him. He wanted to send him to comfort the brethren. Paul is concerned about the brethren being comforted. And so he's going to send First Timothy and Epaphroditus. Or he sent Epaphroditus, excuse me, and then Timothy, and then he hoped to go himself. But he's concerned all of this because he's concerned about the Philippian believers. And he says, I understand him so that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be the less sorrowful. When I know you stop worrying about him and you can rejoice to see how God restored him, then I'll be happy. Because your state affects mine. Your condition affects mine, he said. He didn't say, oh, well, that's their problem. Receive him in the Lord with all gladness and hold such in reputation. Be happy to see him. Well, I'm sure they were. And Epaphroditus evidently carried this letter back with him when he went. See, yeah. And so they said, receive him. Be glad he's back. And of course they were. But he said, not only that, esteem them. Hold such men in esteem. Here's an example to follow, he said. Now follow it. Hold such men in reputation. Because for the work of Christ, he was near death. I know some men that kill themselves in a job and that nearly kill themselves in a job. Burned a candle at both ends 
And what about for the work of Christ? I can't go serve in a country like that. People die of malaria there. They don't have the hygienic conditions that we have in the United States. For the work of Christ, he was near death. I tell you, I've had to eat things I never thought I would eat. The Lord has a sense of humor. I was a picky eater when I was growing up. I wouldn't eat any kind of seafood. Maybe flounder, if it didn't have any bones in it. And my parents had fixed clam chowder and oyster stew and all that, and I'd get sick and throw up. I wouldn't eat that stuff. Gross me out, man. Tuna. Tuna casserole, tuna sandwich, all that. I said, blah, fish on bread. Blah. <laughs> and I went to Spain. They eat seafood all the time. <laughs> I went to a little village on the coast there that had this unique delicacy that they ate that they didn't even eat in the villages on either side of it on the coast. But in this village, they ate live sea urchins. And just happened, we were witnessing to this guy who lived in that village. He was a fisherman, and so he invited us to his house to eat. And for the sake of the gospel, we were presenting the gospel to him. I had to sit down at that table and eat six live sea urchins. And you crack that nasty-looking shell open, and on the inside you say, where's the beef? What's in there? Have you ever seen the inside of a live sea urchin? Yeah, it just looks like um, strawberry jelly. That's what it looks, just mush. The animal is just this mucous membrane that lines the inside the shell. It sifts the, the seawater in and out and eats the microorganisms out of it, you know. And that's, how, that's all there is in there is strawberry jelly. It didn't taste like no strawberry jelly. <laughs> so they take a little piece of bread and wipe it out of there and look into the mouth. And they have this jug over here with white wine. And they go, take a bit of that, and they put other things on the table to drink for those who don't want that. But I tell you, that's some of the nastiest stuff I ever ate in my life. I couldn't get out of it for the sake of the gospel. The only thing that made it humorous to me at that time was I had a fellow with me that I was discipling. He was from Chicago. He grew up in Chicago. He didn't even he never saw a pig pen or never never ate anything live like that. And his, he was worse off than I was. And he kept looking at me, looking at me. He said, when do we get to the chicken? <laughs> not yet not yet you got to eat some more of these and other things in India I still don't know what I ate you just and in other places where you just look at the, the plate of food and you say well they're eating it and they're alive So I'll pray the missionary's prayer. Lord, I'll get it down and you keep it down. (laughs) See, we worry about all this kind of stuff. And the Lord says, look, Christ died for you. Stop seeking your own. Follow the example of Paul, willing to be poured out. Follow the example of Timothy, who sought not his own, but who, who sought to care for others. Follow the example of Epaphroditus, who for the cause of Christ is near death, who didn't regard his life. He wasn't a cushioned Christian. Are you a cushioned Christian? Are you an isolated Christian? Are you a frozen Christian? What kind of a Christian are you? 
He didn't isolate himself from pain and sacrifice and loss and difficulty. And he did it to supply what was lacking. So we have Christ's example of love and humility and service and sacrifice. We have the example of Paul and Timothy and Epaphroditus who worked out their salvation with fear and trembling. There's three examples of what that means right there. Who rejoiced to be able to serve the Lord and his people. We know what they did, but the question is, what are we going to do? Life is short. You only go around once. You can only spend your life once. What are you spending it on? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of Paul. We thank you for the example of Timothy, for the example of Epaphroditus. We would follow in their steps. Teach us to do it. Help us to learn to be those kind of disciples, Lord. Deliver us from our petty quarrels and whims and desires. And help us to be willing to be poured out in your service. Lead us and teach us as we go, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.